so if you could just turn, uh, there's two things you're going to need now. And the handout that you were just on, if you'll continue to turn, you have The Other America by Dr. Martin Luther King. You want to find that. How many of you have had the privilege of either hearing, because it is on YouTube, or reading Dr. Luther King's uh, Another America? Anybody here? Um, what would be your, y'all listen up, uh, Alicia, you remember it? Was it a long time ago or recently? Sorry. What was your impression from it? By the way, this is a lecture that was that was uh, given at Stanford University towards the end of his uh, civil rights era. I mean, it wasn't long before he was killed. Go ahead. Well, it's heartbreaking. You know, this is a very sad testimony, but I feel like he gave Okay. <laughs> Greg, what did you hear? What, what do you remember about that? You raise your hand. That's an answer? Did you answer? I didn't hear. I can't Oh, you can't remember. Um, yeah. What was your... I actually posted it because it was so um, impactful to me. I've, I've heard and read bits and pieces of it before, but when you sent it out on Friday, I like, immediately read it. Um, and what struck me was how much things have not... Oh, my God. I can't believe you just said that. And that it, was going to be my point right it's there. It's so disheartening to read. It, was it is. Like it broke my heart to read those words. And think like yeah. how sad he would be to yeah. see how much we've taken advantage of this time, but not taken advantage of It is of extremely time. depressing yeah. when you think that this was written in, not what read in 67, was it? Uh, years ago. Yeah, 67. And it's in some ways you might even think it's gotten worse. Well, let's, let's look at that briefly as a kind of uh, intro. Um, you'll see some of my highlights, and you may want to, uh, again, I hope that you've had a chance to read it. We sent it out hoping that you would do that. So I want you to be able to just, for a minute, I want just to talk about this, this, this talk, this lecture. And, um, you know, again, what, what we hear from it. And one of the things that uh, I start off with is the American Negro finds himself living in a triple ghetto, a ghetto of race, a ghetto of poverty and a ghetto of human misery. Um, you know, this is a very sticky statement. Um, there are many and wonderful, uh, empowered, and achieved African Americans who live today that would feel uncomfortable with this definition of their blackness. Um, I can say that in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, our denomination, I would say we have a growing, and it's exciting, a, a very growing, strong, growing um, community of African-American churches and pastors, and I would say 99.9% .9 of them would disagree with this as a self-definition. They would say, but they would agree with it relative to the condition of the majority of African-Americans. So be, I want to say it right off, be careful, because this is one of the stereotypes, or what we're going to call profiling in a minute, that can be very offensive. That just to see a black man, especially, means that you, can, that you, that you assume that they're from the ghetto. And that's, that's something to be careful about, and that's something to just... But that being said, there is a relationship between poverty and blackness. And we're going to need to explore that a little bit in this issue of race. There is. And, and I think King is going to explore that as well as anybody right here. All right? 
So hold on to that. But I wanted to make that point. Now, if you go to the uh, couple of pages later, I didn't. They're not numbered. I see that, right? So you're going to just have to follow me. If you go to the next page with a bunch of, of stuff on it. Um, He's talking about the, uh, you know, one way that you could put it in our context, you know, about racism, you know, many people will say, well, didn't we just elect this black guy president? I mean, doesn't this prove that racism is over in America? How many of you have heard someone say that or, or voice it? Has any of you? I want to ask you to ask the question when, when you hear all about racism on the TV, how many of you thought that? You probably won't admit it. But I honestly did. I had those thoughts. I said, wow, haven't we come, haven't we come a long way? I mean, you know, some of you may know I, I, was, I, I was deeply um, formed, and I think, uh, I think Kevin had some of this experience too, but I was really deeply formed by my high school experience that was one of the first desegregation schools in downtown Atlanta. And that was the mecca of, of civil rights, as you know. And um, it, it, it changed my life. And so coming out of that, I knew that racism exists, but I came out with a lot of hope because I had the experience, similar to what you saw in that movie, um, that I talked the, the What? Remember the Titans. Remember the Titans. It was kind of, it put that in an urban situation with a very bad football team uh, instead of a good football team, and you have my experience, almost identical. And uh, I got a big, see that big scar right there? That is civil, that is racism right there. That's what that is. Um, Two teams, one team coming after my knee and another team going after another knee because we were the two starting tailbacks and and whose tailback was going to win when you merged two teams. Well, theirs did. (laughs) There's my scar to prove it. But um, but it turned out to be the greatest. But it turned out to be a very tumultuous but powerful experience I know in my life. And so so that gave me the sense that there's really hope that if you really do get to know one another, you can get beyond racism. I thought. And then when President you know and when President Obama was nominated, I, I'll never forget sitting my 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 couch. And y'all see me talk about this a little bit in the church where, I, and I, I just found myself just I, I just couldn't control it. I just I just started literally the kind of weeping where you kind of lose your breath. It's like this. It was such an incredibly hopeful moment for me, you know, that this this person had been nominated, and and wow, we've really cracked this ceiling. We thought, God, were we wrong? I mean, it feels worse right now than seven or eight years ago, you know. And um, so it's interesting here, this little quote, 67 and 50 years ago, like you said. Now, the other thing that we've got to come to see now that many of us didn't see too well during the last 10 years, that is that racism is still alive in American society. There's a lot of hopefulness after the Civil Rights Act. And then later, you know, the, 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 what's the, the laws that the, you could vote. Um, and um, and he's talking about these great political accomplishments that had happened, you know, at literally five years earlier. And so he's saying something now. I mean, like you said, thank you, because that's my main theme about this. He's in a similar situation that we might be in, where he's 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 marveling that we're. It's not changed. And so listen, he says it's still alive in American society and much more widespread than we realize. 
We must see racism for what it is. It is a myth of the superior and the inferior race. It is the false and tragic notion that one particular group, one particular race, is responsible for all the progress and all the insights and the total flow of history and the theory that another group or another race is totally depraved, innately impure and innately inferior. You know, we may, you know, coming out of the white America, uh, who went to school in desegregation, black and white, you know, at first I, I chafed at some of the black history mutts, right? If you're white, um, I chafed at some of the, you know, celebrate black music, celebrate black, celebrate bright. And I've heard it said, you know, why don't we celebrate white history month? And why don't we celebrate white music? And why don't we celebrate, you know? Well, why don't we? Because this is what's happening. This is what's underneath that movement. It's trying to bring a counter-narrative to an assumption that can come in the form of Western society snobbery. <laughs> um, this idea that this Eurocentric versus African-centric culture is superior. Music from England, literature from England, culture from England, dress code from England, personality, you know, tight lip, keep it to the chest. Personality from England is superior personality. Don't tell me, thank you. Don't tell me racism is alive and well today. I'm going to give you some illustrations of that in a minute. Yeah. I, I was really struck by when people look at the Statue of, of Liberty when he said when uh, Negroes feel like they're a motherless child. Yeah. That, yeah. That they don't see the Statue of Liberty that way. That's right. That's right. So here's some, just kind of looking at it, to use a philosophical analogy here, racism is not based on some empirical generalization, it's based rather on an ontological affirmation, it's not assertion that certain people are behind culturally or otherwise because of environmental condition, it is the affirmation that the very being of a person is inferior, and this is the great tragedy of it. Now, I would suggest that no one in this room is what would, would, would believe themselves to be philosophically on. Uh, or hold to what we call ontological racism. I mean, I, I think, you know, I could, I'm safe to say that most of us would not hold that view. Um, but here's where I want us to think about this for a minute. Um, it's true. Uh, America electing a minority president is the first time in the history of nations other than I believe I mentioned it here, uh, uh, where was it, in Peru. I mean, think about that. So it's a pretty major achievement. First time in the history of nations, modern nations, that a minority within that country was elected uh, the chief officer, if you will. Um, but prejudice can be defined as thinking that race is better than any other race. So many of you are probably thinking, I'm not prejudiced. I don't think one race is better. I believe we're all made in the image of God, right? You'd say that. But be careful. Maybe the most offensive thing you can say, and I don't know if you could agree with this. Where's all your folks here? But you're here. Uh, any other African American here? Um, one of the most offensive you can say you can say is I'm colorblind. See, that's that's the privilege of the majority. Try being a minority. You know, we heard Kevin Smith talk about this, right? Try going into the grocery store where it says ethnic on a row. And you say, well, I, I guess that's me. <laughs> and the whole rest of the store, that's not me. You see, think about the subtle messages going on there. 
then it can be with other ethnicities as well. I'm going to argue that the black experience is a unique. I don't think black uh, uh, black African American community. I, I, we're going to talk about the issue of immigration and why it's a unique situation in a minute. If you read the, if, if you read it, you know what I'm going to say. But just listen to this for a minute. Prejudice is not just thinking that a certain race is better than another race or making racial slurs. Prejudice can also be classified as imposing stereotypes, generalities on an individual based on their race, gender, nationality, in a way that divides them, their individuality, and their opportunity to live consistent with themselves. Prejudice can be about discrimination, about believing one race is inherently inferior to another, sure. But today there are few Americans who really openly would confess that. Um, you know, we see the Ku Klux Klan, I'm sure, as evil and outcast. Um, however, there are many stereotypes. Black about whites, by the way, right? And whites about blacks. Rich about poor, poor about rich. Male, female, why it goes. So let's talk about this thing we call racial profiling. What are we doing when we profile someone according to their race? Tell me what we're doing. What are you doing when I say profile? You're saying they're essentially all the same. Yeah, good. You're generalizing, you're, you've lost, what have you lost? You've lost the individual, the human being, made in the image of God. So in some ways, there's a deep ontological, at least logic going on here, that we cease looking at people as individuals made in the image of God when we profile. We're looking at stereotypes, we're looking at its social figures, whatever it is that you're looking at. Um, and they can severely hurt, limit, or pigeonhole another person in ways that can form identities that are not in conflict with each, they're in conflict with each other. You know, it wasn't long that um, Obama's wife, Michelle, you know, she pushed back, and, and it kind of was one of her moments where she pushed back against the stereotype of the, quote, angry black woman. You know, she lives in that stereotype, and she's sensitive to it. Um, you know, you're, I'm walking down the hill. Now, think about the stereotype. Maxine, help me out here. You live in the hill. I'm walking down the hill. What could be a stereotype about me in the hill? Are you buying drugs? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, I did. Huh? 100%. Buying drugs? But for you, well, not, you're not going to be walking. You'll be driving your motorcycle down there. That's true, man. They want to transmit to me. I like that. No, when, um, when I visited Malcolm, the guy I told you about earlier, um, Malcolm uh, came back over there to visit. I'd go back to there periodically, and um, they used to laugh at me because I was the only person that went into this area. Do you remember what was called, Lisa, this area where all the drugs and stuff was going on? But I was young and reckless and didn't know better and thought I was big enough to deal with anybody that could. So I'd walk into this place all the time, and I kind of got known in the community as, as, the, as the white man that'll go there. I can't believe the name, I lost the name of it. It's like the tunnel or something. And so about four years later, I walked in there and just said, I'm going to walk over there and see if I can find some of my old, my old buddies. And there was Malcolm. It was clear he had just aged about 100 years and three. And uh, he said, bro, you got to get out of here, man. You've got to get out of here. Now, what was he thinking, Maxine? Huh? What was he thinking? He didn't want yeah, to talk to me. Yeah, he's trying to save you. Well, he didn't want to talk to me, though. Why? Why didn't he want to talk to me? Because everyone would assume I'm a narc. Everyone would assume I'm in with narcotics. They'd think I'm coming yeah. over there to do something. And if I'm talking to Malcolm, he's in trouble. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's going to get in trouble. Yeah. So you got to get out of here. We can't be like this. Um, so we all stereotype, is my point. We all 
create stigmas, etc. Depending on context, place, etc. Um, if you're walking down the street of a North Shore town in Connecticut and you're black, you're a black man, you'll be suspected that you're up to no good. You know, we had a couple that moved into our neighborhood and I asked them why you moved. They happen to live in Madison. And again, I love Madison and all these places. But they lived in Madison. I said, why'd you live? She goes, I just couldn't tolerate it again. I guess something happened. Remember about a year ago, there was some black man that was arrested or something for being in Madison and on the street and some, but it just broke her heart, you know, and it was a totally innocent thing. And so, so she just couldn't t- stand the stereotype. And so, um, look, you know, uh, we, we, we stereotype. I go through some things here. What about this idea of white privilege? Do you understand white privilege? Did you read that article? What is white privilege? Somebody help me out here. And do you own this? Because I know a lot of whites that don't. See, now I'm off the races. I can talk to my friend that I got in my head in my living room the other day, at least remembers who it is. And this person, she is not racist ontologically. She believes deeply, biblically, in the equality of the races, etc., etc., etc. But she would take strong issue with this concept of white privilege. And I'm going to bring this up as, a, as one manifestation of racism. Now, what do I mean by that? Did you want to help? Yeah. Well, I. If I want to drive into rural areas of New England, mm-hmm. I know that I won't have any trouble. Yeah. And I, do, I don't feel fear. That's right. Okay, good. Others? If, if, I'm, oh, yeah. if I'm shopping in the store, nobody follows me. Good. If yes, I'm, yes, go ahead, Maxine. If I'm, to, I'm, if, if I'm talking to someone, like, say if I'm talk to someone important and I and I have Joanne with me. They'll be looking at Joanne before they ask me. See, we, and, and how many people would ever notice that in this room besides yeah, you? Yeah, I, I did that already this week. You did? I mean, I've already done that to Maxine and John. I, I talked to Chip first. <laughs> <laughs> yes, back there. Amy? If, I, uh, if I'm applying for a job and my name's Jason versus Jamal, Jason will probably be yeah. chosen over Jamal. Yeah. What is white privilege? It's the social advantage that comes from being seen as the norm in the United States. Privilege often, I mean, this is as much a privilege of being a majority, so it's not all race, it's also majority versus minority, but it's the privilege of being a majority over against a minority, first of all. And it is true for all. It's true for immigrants of all minorities, right? But there is a unique kind of white privilege in comparison to black that I think we need to be very open about. But we'll get to that. So yes, it's automatically conferring, irrespective of wealth, gender, or other factors. It smooths out life, but in a way that barely is barely noticeable, unless it doesn't apply to you. A set of unearned assets, that's what we mean by privileges, unearned, that is, just by virtue of who you are at birth, that white people can count on cashing in each day, even as they remain largely oblivious in their advantage. Um, you know, you, Keith King was here uh, during our MA conference, and he shared about white privilege. This is a man who, um, you know, who went to the most uh, elite schools, uh, was a, ga- a celebrated, by the way, got the Medal of Honor for being a, a JAG lawyer in the in the Navy. In the yeah, Navy, um, was the district attorney here in, in New Haven, Connecticut. 
And during those years and all those contexts, he is saluted, he is honored, he is revered, he's got a great academic degree, etc. And he becomes a pastor in New Hallville. And he's, he's, he said since, since he's lived there, he's been pulled over countless times coming into New Haven. He's, he's treated differently. There's an assumption about him, and he finds in himself this impulse to prove himself. You know? And, and there's just there's untold number of privileges that come with that assumption that he has now ceased to have. He finds himself teaching his 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 sons how to drive, how to act when a cop comes. Don't you you show them your hands immediately. Don't even dare put your hands down. You know, he's going through a whole thing about how to deal with a cop. I never even thought to do that with my kids. Never even once. The, the, the bias that, have, that uh, and again, I'm not blaming cops. Cops are good. I think 99% of them, I'm pro-cop. It's not the cop issue. It's, it's a society. And so on and on this goes, there's a privilege. And so, so the thing that, that I want to get at here, and then we're going to look at the uh, handout, the hand, the, the, more of this, but I want us to look at this issue about the notion that somehow, particularly in the African-American community, that um, that there is there, and, and I'm sure there's responsibility. We all can. Well, you heard the empowerment talk we just talked about. No one should ever be uh, uh, dismissed or, or allowed to act bad. Okay, we, th- we that's not empowering to say to people you couldn't help yourself. That's the most. That's the least empowering thing you can say. Uh, we are not cogs in a system, and yet there is a system. And it takes humanity and the image of God to rise above that system, act against it. And we will always treat every humankind with the power to act contrary to our sensory perception. We're not animals. We can deny ourselves taste. So there's a huge sermon in those two sentences that I just gave that I don't have time to get into. Do you understand what I'm saying, though? So on the one hand, we will never, ever, ever dehumanize someone to say that you're merely the product of your system. And you have choices, and they're real. And we'll teach them and pray for them and help them make the right choices. That being said, we cannot, on the other hand, ignore what Dr. King here and others understand about the unique privilege of white against the unique disadvantage of the particular immigrant community that we know is African American. And so let's get into that a little bit. Um, he talks about this thing uh, down here in the, f- the bottom there. The, the same page down here. It looks like this if you're looking for it. So I'm sorry. I didn't put it. Yep. And uh, he says, in 1963, the Negro was freed from the bondage of physical slavery. But at the same time, the nation refused to give him land to make that freedom meaningful. And at that same period, America was giving millions of acres of land in the West, in the Midwest, you know, the big rush. What that, which meant that America was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an, e- an economic floor. That was a, by the way, if you know the 19th century, that was a huge immigration er- era in America. With, a, with an economic floor that would make it possible to grow and develop and refused to give that. Let's see, where am I going here? Okay, let's see. Economic floor to its black peasants, so to speak. See, it's about history. 
This is why Frederick Douglass could say that the emancipation for the Negro was freedom to hunger, freedom to the winds and rains of heaven, freedom without roofs to cover our head. He went on to say that it was a freedom without bread to eat, freedom without land to cultivate. It was a freedom and famine at the same time, but it does not stop here. In 1875, the nation passed a civil rights bill and refused to enforce it. In 1964, the nation's passed a weaker civil rights bill, and even to this day, that bill has not been totally enforced in all of its dimensions. The nation heralded a new day of concern for the poor, for the poverty-stricken, for the disadvantaged, and brought into being a poverty bill at the same time it put such little money into the program that it was hardly and still remains hardly a good skirmish against poverty. Blah, 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 blah. So these conditions exist at widespread poverty, slums, of tragic connections in schools and other areas of, of life. All of these things have brought about a great deal of despair and a great deal of desperation, a great deal of disappointment and even bitterness in the Negro communities. And today, all of our cities confront huge problems. All of our cities are potentially powder gags as a result of the continued existence of these conditions. You know, this is what, I mean, it sounds like you're writing, this sounds like 2016, doesn't it? That's, that's just incredible. All right? And so we need to think about it. And I want to go one more point and then start going positive here. Um, you know, he's talking about how the plight of the Negro has, has worsened over the last years. I'm looking for that passage where, you know, he's talking to this guy and he says, look, why? I, huh? On the airplane? Yeah. Yeah, where is that? I'm looking for that. I'm all messed up. Yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. Like I'm catching a ball and I can't see it. Y'all don't know that. You haven't been on baseball. But... Okay. Yes, there we go. So let's just read this. Go ahead, Craig, and read that uh, for us. Because this, this is something else he was communicating. And again, I think we need to remember to this day. Go ahead. A man was on the plane with me some weeks ago. He came up to me and said... The problem, Dr. King, that I see with what you all are doing is that every time I see you and other Negroes, you're protesting and you aren't doing anything for yourselves. And he went on to tell me that he was very poor at one time and he was able to make by doing something for himself. Why don't you teach your people, he said, to lift themselves up by their own bootstraps. And then he went on to say other groups face disadvantages, the Irish, the Italian, and he went down the line. And I said to him that it does not help the Negro, it only deepens his frustration upon feeling insensitive people to say to him that other ethnic groups who migrated or who were immigrants to this country less than 100 years or so ago have gotten beyond him, and he came here some 344 years ago. And I went on to remind him that the Negro came to this country involuntarily in chains, while others came voluntarily. I went on to remind him that no other racial group has been a slave on American soil, went on to remind him that the other problems we have faced over the years that this society placed a stigma on the color of the Negro, on the color of his skin because he was black. Doors were closed to him that were not closed to other groups. And I finally said to him that it's a nice thing to say to people that you ought to lift yourself by your own bootstraps, but it is a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And the fact is that millions of Negroes, as a result of centuries of denial and neglect, have been left bootless. They find themselves impoverished aliens in this affluent society. And there's a great deal that the society can and must do for Negroes to gain the economic security that it needs. All right, so that's pretty self-explanatory. And I think it's, you know, I hope that I'm beginning to address some of the racist kinds of assumptions, even if it's unintended. I use the phrase often, unintended racism. 
I think much of what you are hearing him react to here is what I would describe as unintended racism. You know, talking to someone who, who doesn't understand and, and, and think about the seriousness of the history. Doesn't think about the seriousness of the systemic issues that came out of that history. You know, I'll never forget, but the other thing is, to, you know, I, I was talking with Keith King. We met not long ago uh, for breakfast to talk about reconciliation issues, and he was really honest. He said, I want to I hear, you know, and it was wise for him to do. He said, I want to hear from you, a, a southern white man, you know, what was it like to grow up? And, and, and you, know, with, you know, what are my assumptions that I probably don't have, you know, that are wrong? And I told him one of the things, and I want to say this to encourage us, I said, well, one of the assumptions is that I think there's a general assumption that, that all Southern white people uh, are just the same, just like, you know, are, are kind of cookie-cutter racist. And it's a lot more complicated. I mean, I'll never forget my grandfather was born in Meridian, Mississippi. And, um, and he is sitting in a room, and, and you'd have to know this man. He's kind of this amazing Renaissance man. He played music, did photography as an architect, all that stuff. So he's kind of an interesting guy. But he was, but he was a deep southerner, true and true, man. Virginian moved to, to, uh, to Mississippi. You don't get much southerner than that. And uh, raised his daughter there. And so, uh, so I never forget, though, this issue of, uh, um, you know, um, getting tired. What is it, you know, what, the, the program that, that, that that's... Uh, you sit in a room. No, I know that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a, a program. Um, what do you call it when we... we affirmative action. Affirmative action. Thank you. That's what I'm talking about. Thank oh, you. Amazing. <laughs> I know. I didn't give a hint. Well, that's kind of what's going... That's what King is here talking about, right? And, and you know, and, and there was this room in there, and they were all rapping about how bad that is, how every... Basically, given the, the, the line that you heard King give right here, the same standard line of, you know, I had to work hard, and I had to do this, and I had to do that. My my family, the Texas side, would just chafe at this and say, you know, we're, we're Texans, and we went in there and with our bare hands and beat Indians and dug up the soil. I mean, there's a real Texan mentality there going on, right? And so, and I'll never forget him say, just real simply and just very powerfully, he said, we got these folks into this mess and we have to get them out of it. We have to help get them out of it. You know, uh, uh, John Perkins tells a story about affirmative action. He says, look, you got a basketball game. And for the first half, this thing's been rigged. You know, every, every point the red team gets, they get four Four, you know, four points, and every point the blue team gets, they get two. And then at halftime, it's, you know, the replays. You know, look at that. That thing's been going twice as fast over here. Every point, four. Every point, two. So what do you can do in the second half? I mean, you know, history. History. The key here that I keep wording is the word history. 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 History is powerful. History is relived and influenced every day of your life. You cannot think that history stops. It's fluid, it's living, and it consistently and continually moves through our lives. So like that basketball game, it's not like we said, you know, oh, we're, we're in a different history now. Let's stop the game, cancel the game, and start our new. That's what you would think. You'd, well, you're in the same game. We call American history. And so he said, Berkman says, it'd be like saying, okay, we're going to start playing fair now. Second half. Let's start playing fair. Would that be fair? It's not fair at all. So, now look, I'm not getting into any policies right now, if you'll notice. This is very, very, very complicated stuff. I am not here to talk about 
policy. Because, because what I'm talking about is racism and the way in which I want this narrative that we're describing here to influence your attitudes, not your... Look, whether it's Keith King or others that I know who are committed to gospel-centered empowerment, they are as against enablement-based affirmative action as anybody. So we, we can have a long conversation about the best method to do affirmative action in a manner that would truly empower someone. So there's absolutely nothing I've said right now that gives you an inkling as to what I think about our policy in America. If you think you know what it is, you don't, I'll promise you. What I'm talking about is your attitude. The attitude that, that King is talking about that is racist, that wants to, to ignore history as if it doesn't matter, that wants to profile as if it doesn't matter, that wants to assume that because I am ontologically or philosophically not racist means that I'm not racist. Because, again, um, to say I am colorblind is about as racist as it gets to be a majority white guy saying that. It's about as offensive as it can get to be to say that. If you if you have an African American friend and you walk up there and say, "Oh man, I'm just colorblind. I don't even I don't even notice it," and it might be true in your workplace, it might be true when you get to know someone. And I'll get it that in a minute locally. But just try being a black man or black woman, but especially a poor black man walking through this life, where every single solitary day he is color sensitive. Have you ever been, I know you have, to a foreign country, or many of you have, or a place where you are a radical minority? It, raise your hand. You had another experience, right? Can you remember how obvious it was, race, how you were not colorblind there? I mean, I remember being in Haiti, and Haiti is a very black skin blackness, okay, right? And I remember going through the city. I was over there by myself with a bunch of Haitians. I intentionally, you know, wanted to go over there and spend a couple of weeks just with the pastors and the Haitians and hang out with them, go into their homes, and I was really unsettled. I went in this huge port city. I can't remember the name of it way down the road there, and it was a mass. I mean, felt like billions of people, okay, in the street. Literally, just, just as crammed with people as you could get. And I was the only white person in that whole place. And I walked around deeply unsettled. And if that person said, man, I'm colorblind. I got no problem. I'm colorblind. I'd go, huh, you have no clue how color I am right now. And we forget that. But, in, but see, that's true for all ethnicities, right? That's true for all ethnicities in America that are minorities. But then, then take that and put the history to the particular ethnicity of black. Where the assumption now is not that you're a, you know, an ambitious young student from China walking the streets of New Haven, what, what if you were a, a, an Asian man? Now, there are racial slurish things about Asian men for sure, right? But what if you were just an Asian student? I've never had an Asian student in my life. I've, we've had a lot of Asian students here, and I've talked to many, many of the graduates, and they've never had one come to me and say, well, well, I've actually had one conversation about the stereotype in America with m pop media that Asian men are sleazy, right? Um, that kind of thing. I had one person who wanted to, 
But for the most part, I doubt anybody that was an Asian man found behavioral changes in people walking towards them when he was walking down the street. Same age African American man, and there's probably not one walking in my neighborhood in Brantford, let's say, where I used to live, that wouldn't find somebody go across the street instead of the, the wrist walking by him. You see what I mean? That's what we're talking about when we talk about racism and hyper-racism when it comes to the blackness because of the history. A history where there was, take everything you learned about poverty and the ethic of poverty and what poverty does to someone and the stem to, to th that then you would stereotype and, and profile every black person with that poverty cycle and its attributes upon that person. I'm trying to help you get in touch with what Keith King who is one of the most educated people I know in the world, whose kids go to Choate, and what he experiences every single day in New Haven. And he would not exaggerate when he says every single day. You want to talk about Neat Tata? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, he's an African who came here. Some of you know Neat Tata, a uh, deacon in this church who came from uh, Ghana. Ghana. And he came to me and said, I. I don't understand what's happening over here. He'd been here about two years, and he came to me and said, you know, everywhere I go, I'm treated with respect. I'm treated nicely. I, you know, I went to Europe. I went to, he, he studied in Britain in high school, went to one of the schools, came here, and then he's treated badly everywhere he goes. And he says, I don't understand what's happening to me. What am I doing? And I said, me, I hate to tell you this, but it's just pure color. And there's a history in this country. And it's a sad history, and you're experiencing that history. And that's really almost verbatim what I said. That's all I need to say. Of course, helping through it. Okay, so let's close off this thing um, with the rest of this little handout that I've given you. Any questions, thoughts, comments, rebuttals? All fair. Well, here's what I would say we need to do with racism. And I'm talking to us who are Anglos, white. Or, or anybody, well, anybody that's not black, honestly, um, in this context. I would say let's start with, with confession. Um, you, you, I give you the scripture, by the way. I think it's, uh, look, I, I, I hope I hope you know the scriptures. I gave you a couple of narratives. The, the two narratives I gave you was meant to illustrate history and how, how radical, what history does to us. So you can read that. It's really kind of interesting about the way your view, you know, this, well, I'll just say, you know, you know, Trump is running around saying, let's make America, what, make, let's make America great again. And then you have Clinton going around saying, let's, let's, we're, we, let's keep progress. Let's move. Let's don't go back. Let's go forward. There's this kind of, and, and again, I'm not politi political here at all. You don't, you really don't have a clue and I don't let you know it. But, um, but, uh, but just think about sort of how simple that is when you think about narrative one and narrative two here. I want you to understand, what I'm trying to emphasize, and this is very important in race conversations, is to not forget history. It does still live. And here's this thing, you know, if once upon a time people lived in societies that were unequal and oppressive, where the rich got rich and the poor got exploited, chattel slavery, child labor, economic inequality, racism, sexism, discrimination of all types abounded until the liberal progressive traditional of fairness, justice, care, and equality brought about a free and fair society, and now conservatives want to turn back the clock in the name of individualistic greed and God. Now that's narrative number one. Very skewed, right? Admittedly. Very skewed. 
Narrative number two, once upon a time, people lived in societies that embraced values and traditions where people took personal responsibility, worked hard, enjoyed the fruits of their labor, and through charity helped those in need. Marriage, family, faith, honor, loyalty, sanctity, and respect for authority and the rule of law brought about a free and fair society. But then these liberals came along and destroyed everything in the name of progress and utopian social engineering. Sounds pretty right to me, right? Both of them are right. Now see what's happening here? Uh, look, you could pick holes in this. I know you are right now. I know you, some of you. You are sitting here picking holes in this. And that's not my point. My point is to say, wow, I hadn't really thought about it, but my people and my people's experience in this country would really make a big difference in how I perceive a lot of things. What, what newspaper do you think narrative number one's reading? New York Times, maybe? Yeah, what 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 telev television set? I mean, t uh, TVs, CNN maybe or MS MS Yeah. What about the other one? Oh yeah, Fox News all the way. <laughs> Wall Street Journal, right? And so it's amazing how determined these things are, and that's my point. Racism adopts the history in a manner that excuse. And, and, and blinds us to the person. Everything I'm saying here is going to go back to this idea that every human being you meet is made in the image of God and deserves the dignity of that. To be treated as if they have a person and a history and a life and all of that. So here's the key scriptures. I obvious. I think you should, you know, obviously start with the image of God. We look at Ephesians, that, that, you know, this Acts passage, by the way, and he made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. Of course, where is all this going? I won't read all these scriptures. It's all going to heaven and the multinational union uh, that's all there. That's what we should be pulling for here and, and acting towards, right? So where is it going to do? First of all, I would encourage every one of us to enter into a relationship with somebody that is of another race, whenever we do, whether we do it vicariously on TV, whether we do it watching, hearing, but to go into it. You're Christians. God has forgiven you. Go into it with a spirit of confession. You know what you do in AA, right? You know, my name is Billy Bob. I'm a racist. I am. I'm a racist. A lot of unintentioned racing, but I get to be humble and understand that I have a lot more left to go. I've been, I've grown a lot this year, being a part of the BOH community, and I've grown a lot in my confession of racism. Um, this is what was just adopted at our General Assembly two days ago. In seeking to confess and repent of our own sins, we acknowledge the General Assembly of the Church in America. We acknowledge that the iniquity of our fathers, did you hear the history? That the inequity of our fathers may continue in the midst of some of our churches, and as they do, they negatively affect our denomination as a whole. There it is. And then it goes on, it says, Therefore be it resolved, I'm going to read this to you, that the 44th General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of America does recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of corporate and historical sins, including those committed during the civil rights era and continuing racial sins of ourselves and our fathers, such as the segregation of worshipers by race, the exclusion of persons from church membership on the basis of race, the exclusion of churches or elders from membership in the Presbyterians on the basis of race, the teaching that the Bible sanctions racial segregation, discourages racial marriages, the participation in and defense of white supremacist organizations 
application of the failure to live out the gospel imperative that love does no wrong to a neighbor. Be it further resolved that General Assembly does recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of all past failures to love brothers and sisters from minority cultures in accordance with what the gospel requires, as well as failures to lovingly confront our brothers and sisters concerning racial sins. That's a big one, by the way. There was a lot of racism, honestly, that was just not being talked about in the past. Uh, one of the most racist churches in the denomination, a whole book was written about the rare racism. The first Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, um, came out with an amazing confession of sin. And one of the major confessions was the way in which they historically um, had fought against the civil rights movement. And how they, and they were guilty as, of sin for that. They pulled out of their own session records, comments and statements that were made and exposed them to the public and said, we confess of these sins. This is powerful stuff, bud. If you didn't grow up in Deep South, man, this is powerful, powerful stuff. You are confessing the sins of your pappy. That's what you're confessing, and you're confessing your own sins and protecting them. That's how serious this stuff is. Believe me, this was huge. And it goes on and talks about what we need to be doing, so you can read that. Um, a take-home for you to think about is that final page, Practical Steps. Um, by the way, you can read these if you'd like. They're all online. Uh, there's a nice pastoral letter uh, called Racial and Ethnic Reconciliation Study. We did come up with a study committee as well, funded it pretty heavily, and we're going to spend the whole year studying the whole issue of race and reconciliation as a denomination. You know, I know this sounds really like, golly, Moses, aren't we in the, are we in the 21st century? Are you serious? I thought this was a 20th century, early 20th century kind of confession, right? Do you get that sense up here? But, um, but you've got to understand that our denomination was formed out of a split between the northern and southern church. And while there were a lot of good reasons for that split that were related theologically um, and, and what needed to happen, uh, with that split came a lot of, of, of race. You know, um, and so that's what's happening here. We're pulling out of the, of the history, the racial aspects of what we might have attained, retained, with what we want to retain, which is the theological aspects. Um, so here's a couple of thoughts again. Um, what do you need to do? Well, number one, make it local. Make it personal. Get beyond carrying signs on the, on the walk and, and thinking that... that uh, you know, political activism is, is getting beyond racism. That is to me, yeah, you need to do that too, maybe. But the point I'm making is, is what can you do individually? Now, we're doing it as a church right now, aren't we? Well, we've got to find real ways to get to know different races. And I'm not just talking about the African American and the white now. I'm talking about all races. Do you have a friend, a genuine friend that is, hangs out at your house, that lives with you and eats with you and talks with you and works with you. It could be someone in your job. But make an effort. If you want to overcome your own, maybe unintentional racism, make an effort to really get to know and become a friend with someone of the other race. That is where it all begins. Because now that person is a person. And then, when that happens, and we can, I want to talk about ideas there, it might mean, you know, again, Lisa and I literally moved. We picked up and moved, and this was a driving force for us. I'm not saying anybody should do that, okay? Don't hear me saying that. That's just our way, something I wanted to do, um, but, uh, and she did. But, uh, but, but you can do things. You can do things to get to know people personally. So do things. We've got a church right here that we can do it with, right? Don't say... 
or thank your colorblind. We've already talked about it. to be so-called colorblind is less a factor of philosophical racism, uh, not racism, and more a factor of majority, majority history, experience, etc. But we are colorblind. We don't understand what uh, other race experiences. By the way, that's true for blacks about whites or Asians about whites too. Again, Chip, you need to have this conversation and, and if it's a predominant black community, you say, hey, you're colorblind too. Maybe you don't understand what the, what the right race experiences. And we do experience a lot. It was amazing. We had this uh, MA collaborative and we were doing the racial reconciliation thing and there was, you know, King and everything. Tolliver, some of you know Tolliver was there and he, he he's now... Um, Pastoring a multi, you know, uh, cultural church in the inner city of Atlanta, and and uh, you know, as this we were talking about all this stuff, and he stood up and said, "Look, you know, one thing I'm learning is is I we need to pray for the white man. Dude, he's suffering." I said, well, "I didn't hear that, you know." But he really went on to talk about you know the fact that, and it's true that that uh, th- there's a lot of pressure on all of us, guys. We're all hurting. Racism hurts everybody. It hurts everybody. So we need to understand that 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 you know, Fred over here experiences racism too. So do I. You know, I'll never forget I went to your church and I loved it. It was the greatest compliment I had in my life. But man, you preached like a black man. And I loved it, but it was racist. Why? I loved it, by the way. You can tell me that anytime you want. But uh, but why? Because there's, a, there's an assumption that white people don't have personality, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I well, we all do. But the point is, is, is that, uh, you know, there's this sort of assumption. And, we, and those are fun ones, you know. Um, it, it's amazing. I, I just thought of another example, you know, about how we view personality. You know, Anglos are historically incredibly you know, to themselves. And that's unlike Latino, that's unlike African. Uh, I guess the only ones that are more sort of, you know, you have these different strains. I guess the Asian cultures are fairly, um, you know, and those are all beautiful. There's no, the point is we shouldn't be forming morally valuative judgments about that. So you're sitting in a, you're sitting in Sandra's. You're probably going to have a very different experience of volume and personality expression in Sandra's than you do in Lena's, where I go to eat breakfast over in the Westville sometimes. And and we had a conversation with someone about racism, and, and this person was saying was making the point that that that's rude to be loud in, in a restaurant. Really? Well, there's another culture that say it's boring and snobbish to be quiet in a restaurant. To walk in a room and not. Express yourself is the epitome of judging me. And in another culture, it's the epitome of not considering the fact that I want to eat a quiet meal and talk to my wife quietly or something. And you know what? You're going to judge people. You know, I was sitting at Lee's the other day and I heard a, 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 a lot of folks, I heard a lot of noise coming down the road about 8, 30, 9 o'clock in the morning and I felt that little moment of crap racism in my heart. And said, oh boy, here comes, you know, this community. You know, and I was just sick that that thought even hit me. And, and but the key is, I had a value to judgment about it, as if it was. I put the category. It's just so rude, and it's not rude, not necessarily. Now, cross cultural says you want to learn how to uh, contextualize yourself in another culture, and that's part of what we're talking about here to understand that. And there's so many like this, though, that we should affirm. Remember, one of the things in our spirituality, I've got to stop, we talk about sacramentology here, and what we don't mean is just that we do sacraments every Sunday. We mean, listen, that we believe that just as the covenantal 
trajectory of redemptive history is objective, fleshless, global, eternal, all of that, that the temple is local and tactile, flesh. And so we want to plant churches that celebrate the cultural flesh of a congregation, not subdue it. And we want to celebrate the multicultures that are going to be in heaven, not say we're going to come to some dummy-down, platonic, platonized culture. And so we need to learn to celebrate and get beyond our moral, moral valuative statements when we hear... And I just gave you one example of a billion. How rude of them to come in here and make all that noise. How snobbish of them to come in here and not even come up to me with all that wonderful personality of happiness. Let's just both of us say, no, these, these are persons. They have histories. They have cultures. And, and their, their, their flesh should be celebrated. There's something good about being quiet. There's something good about being loud. And we should celebrate them. So, one, make it local. Two, don't be colorblind. Three, work against profiling. There's always a person that should be treated seriously. Suspend your judgment, even though it's hard. With a person of another race that you know personally, find out what their kind, I'm using, you know, cliche here. Find out what their kind Think about your kind. That is a great question. That's what Keith King came up to me and said, hey, I want to know what your kind, you know, believed and thought growing up. Help me understand you. And I'm saying the same thing to Keith or anybody else, you know. We, we got, there, there you are, you're what, Mexican over there? Uh, I was wondering, like, what about me? Well, <laughs> well we, got, we got Asian, we got Mexican, we got others, but I've just, I've wanted to, I've intentionally, I do believe the black experience is a unique immigrant experience in America for obvious reasons. So I've focused on that a lot. But yeah, we need to, I'd be curious, you know, I want to talk to you about our worship, by the way. I've been thinking about some things I want to do in there. But but I want to have a Latino say, well, is your, how, do you feel a little subdued in our worship? Daddy, I bet you do. Don't you kind of want to dance? I bet you want to dance. Now, is that a stereotype for me? You can tell me. Preston, there you are. Your stereotype me is a little. I'll be late for worship. I'm sorry to say I'm not stereotyping. Well, anyway, do you see my point? When we have Christ together, I can go to her, Patty, and say, Patty, tell me how I've, you know, stereotyped you as a, as a Latino or a Mexican-American, whatever. You know, Korean, right? Yeah, man, I got to go to her wedding. I got to do their wedding. It was a great event. But that beautiful ceremony, it will never, ever be left me about your father and how he was serving us at the meal. A very Korean culture, right? You know, we, we ought to learn that. And we ought to learn. I bet you she thinks I'm a really loud mouth son of, you know, I won't say it. I don't know. Um, you know, and I probably think she can be a little snobbish being so quiet over there, although not even. But the point is, let's talk. Let's, let's expose this stuff, you know, and, and love each other and, and realize that, you know, there's a lot. If you've heard one thing from me today, and this is my last point, quit judging each other. That's really all I'm saying. Quit judging each other. There's a lot more to race than you think. And we've got to be slow to moralize it. Father, we... What? Go ahead. Go ahead. You got my sermon there. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I don't know. But isn't it really a racism... There's nothing, or maybe you said this, there's nothing wrong with racism to, to be excited that we're all different. Race. Love that we're all there's, different. Oh, I see. What is the judgment yeah. of it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a, I think I hear what you're saying. Yeah. There's a, 
I guess in using that way, you could say racism could be a good thing if what you're doing is acknowledging that this is a, 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 a characteristic of a culture that we should celebrate and not judge it as moral in a moral category way. It's that's interesting. Not, that's not colorblind. It's not colorblind. That's right. So we shouldn't be colorblind. But we should more valuatively. That's what I'm trying to say. You know, or we, or and it wouldn't, be, and it would, and it's wrong to be colored. It's not to be, you know, we're not colorblind either. When, yeah, I just don't want to ever think. I mean, it's just the thing I want to go back to is, please be sympathetic that every one of us in this room carry the burden of race in a racially divided country. And so we got, we can't just walk, walk. One of the things that King talks about is time just doesn't deal with this. He said, that's one of the great myths. Just give it some time, it'll handle itself. Well, this was written in, that's what you, coming back to the full point, this was written in eight, 1965, or wow. seven, I think. 50 years, and you could be reading, you could, he could be saying the same exact lecture today. We, we have some real work to do here, and we're going to start in and with the church, because I think we got the hope we do well, Lord, thank you for the uh, night we've had, for the day of hard work. I pray you give everyone here rest, that you enable us to participate in this grand, great, powerful experience of the mystery of the gospel, where uh, the two are made as one in Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.